Welcome back to the second installment of Stanley Thompson's Journey West, a Forjack Stories production. In the second part of this three-part series, we are going to cover Thompson's work at the famed Banff Springs Golf Course. This was not just another course added to Thompson's list. This was a work of art. This was Stanley Thompson showing off, providing evidence of his true brilliance. This was a legacy piece. Stage one of the Rocky Mountain work was complete with regards to Jasper Park Lodge. But he still had a contract with the other Canadian railway, Canadian Pacific. Canadian Pacific desperately wanted Banff to be the top resort in the Rockies, and Stanley had full control. But where exactly was Stanley at this stage in his life? And what did he have planned? He had already completed well over 40 courses. Did he have it in him to complete the final word in golf at Banff Springs? So he was, the best way to put it is he was everywhere. But the way it kind of worked for him is if he found a job in one community, so Cleveland's a great example because it's right around this time that he does the five courses in Cleveland. So he'll find a job in, in one community that will lead to another series of jobs. And a lot of times, if you look at his Western work, he goes out to work on something and he ends up working on two or three other things at the same time. And, and that happens often with, with his work, where he'll work in, a, in an area and then a club will ask him to come and work and then another club will ask him to come and work. And he ends up in Montreal around that time as well. And, and a lot of it is just um, once somebody has reached out to bring him, um, it, it seems to always um, sort of bloom into other work. I mean, Brazil's the greatest example. He goes down there to work and he ends up working on four or five different projects and ends up in other places in South America because not too many people are willing to go down there. So when you look at the Western jobs, you'll find that once he shows up out West, he starts working out West. When Stanley arrived in Banff, he faced a seemingly similar job to Jasper. But the conditions appeared to be much more demanding with a lack of topsoil and troubles with a piece of property and existing Donald Ross plan course. But he was determined to make do. But with the nearing end of the Roaring Twenties, where people were in search of golf and luxury and beautiful destinations, was making do enough to help him with this struggling build? When he was asked to look at Banff, the first thing they asked him to do was to look at whether he could work with what they had there. Um, they, uh, Ross had done a plan for Banff and um, they had been building it, but they had been building it with their, um, funny enough, uh, people who were interned during the war. Um, and it was a really rudimentary golf course without Ross's involvement, like he'd, he'd done a plan for them. And they had sort of worked on it in fits and starts, and it wasn't very good. But the biggest problem they had was there was no soil, and they were having problems with turf conditions about the time they asked them to come through. So they actually originally only wanted him to renovate the existing golf course and maybe make some minor changes and just use some of the land where some of the holes are at the far end of the property. Uh, Thompson spent the morning out on the property, and um, the first thing he figured out was he wanted the campground which is the area for the two holes that uh, are closest to the club or to the Banff Springs Hotel and, and the two holes leaving the Banff Springs Hotel uh, which currently are 13 14 15 16. He decided that he wanted to start and finish at the um, Banff Springs Hotel that that was a logical thing to do 
So he came back and he told them that he needed the, that property. And that was the initial negotiations were with the park because they had leased the property for a dollar because the park got sick of it. So they, they provided a long-term lease to Canadian Pacific. And so he, that originally that was the four holes there and he was going to renovate what he had. He was walking again and uh, he found there was a place where they, they've had church services which is the, um, the cauldron, uh, the, the lake up on the mountain. If you remember back to the first part of this series, this was a classic trade of Thompson. Find your par threes first and build out from there. Somehow he managed to stumble onto another one of his iconic holes, the Devil's Cauldron. So he didn't find that through divine intervention like the story that he loves to tell. It wasn't a rock slide that all of a sudden dammed up the lake and created the lake right in front of him. What it was, was that it was an existing spot that was really pretty and actually had paths leading to it. Once he found this spot, he decided he needed a golf hole there, even though it was off property, by the way. Um, he then figured out how he was going to get to it. Um, he explained that to Canadian Pacific. They had to renegotiate the deal that they had made with the park, and they gained that land. And then once they put that all together, they started construction. And it wasn't until they started construction that Thompson informed them that they actually had to blast the seventh hole. On the Banff site, did he use the same par three method that he had in Jasper and some of his other more famous courses where he found the threes first and built around them? So Colt did that. He was an admirer of Colt and he kind of followed that philosophy. He felt that the threes should be over really interesting land because people remember the threes more than they remember the fours and fives. And he always felt that if you had a really uninteresting piece of land and you put a really long five on it, you would eat up more of the uninteresting land in one hole. And if you had a really good piece of land that may have hold a five or a three and a four, you'd rather put the three and the four there because you get two holes on interesting land instead of one. It doesn't mean you wouldn't build a five on interesting land. It just meant that he, he leaned on the idea of short holes on really interesting property because that's what people remember the most. Um, there's no question he worked everything around the cauldron as soon as he found it. Uh, he also, the par three that comes before it is it was in rough form, the same spot used by Ross as well, a really nice natural plateau. So, and then he used the, uh, used to be an elbow of the, the river that came into um, where the uh, par three is in the far corner of the property. And um, so he used that because it was a really interesting water feature. So, yeah, he, he definitely worked around those spots. Um, you know, he had a lot of different ways he could have gone with the preceding five, but he, he worked his way to that to use the par three and then worked his way out with another par five. So um, they did take precedent, the, the, the threes in particular. Um, so I... Uh, Thompson always believed when he was working with a corporation that they had unlimited money and he was quite willing to spend a corporation's unlimited money. So he never once hit a budget that he gave to a corporation. The fascinating part about him was he almost never missed a budget when he was building for um, people or a small enterprise. So that was kind of the one interesting aspect of him is he respected the, the hardworking little person and uh, didn't have, you know, he was to him, a corporation was just a source of anything and everything he could possibly do, including making money. So, and he treated them that way and often. So it was interesting. 
So in the end, when he was building, the build for um, Banff was dramatically more. It was, uh, if I remember correctly, Jasper was 180,000, which was a very, uh, at that time, about 120, 130 would have been a standard golf course. Uh, Banff Springs was 405,000. And the reason we know that is um, uh, I found the numbers by going through Hansard, which is the searchable, um, because everything's public. Um, Canadian Pacific was a public corporation, all of it searchable. Um, and the interesting thing is on the memos, they actually mentioned the Jasper cost because they were doing some investigations. So they were able to get the numbers and and it was searchable for a different reason. So so that's the truth. By the way, that also, uh, one of the most famous things of all with Banff Springs was it was the first golf course built for a million dollars. No, it wasn't. That's a Stanley Thompson story. So I only proved that a couple of years ago. Nobody knew that. And it was just like, I kept thinking there's no way, just knowing what the, I know Highland Links was built for 185,000. So I kept thinking there's no way. But so again, these are tall tales of Stanley, right? So with the cost of the build being north of 400,000, where was that money going with regards to construction? Did he change his building philosophy? Did he bring in new equipment, more labor? What was it? Uh, manpower materials. So he had to blast out the, the green site for the big chunk of rock you see on the right of seven green. Sorry, that's seven green is, so that's the hole before the cauldron. So that would be the third green um, in current day. That's all blasted through where that green site sits. It's the only way you can make the connection. There was a big shoulder of rock coming through there. The cauldron actually took a lot of work as well. Uh, the whole entire site was um, was all imported topsoil. So he, by rail uh, car, it came down to Banff, and then by wagon, it went from Banff um, railway station out to the golf course. And so that took a lot of manpower, and um, they brought in a lot of material. The sands all came from Revelstoke, um, so that was all imported by rail cars. And so it was just the amount of material that it took and, and the harder construction that um, there was a lot more um, rock to deal with there. And there was a lot more difficult sites to deal with. And, and they had to cap the, uh, I can't remember the exact depth, but I think they had to cap everything 18 inches or something like that. It was a lot of material to do it. So they had a real problem with um, trying to grow turf there. Due to the type of work he was doing in the Rockies, Thompson definitely had some defining moments that made him stand out among his peers. He was carving out timeless masterpieces in some of the harshest climates and terrain. It was inevitable that he was going to be proud of his work. But what were some of those standout features on that list? He overcleared the width. And because he overcleared the width, that means you see all the mountain peaks around you. Because you're sitting down flat in the valley in this case, you're not on elevated spots looking out across the valley like you do at Jasper. Jasper has a lot of um, elevation where you can see more of the surrounding land and it had some openness. At Banff, he created the openness because you were down below and he cleared the width. So he opened up the view, but now you've got a massive corridor and, and if you do little features or very little to it, it would be very uninteresting and it'd be out of scale. So what he did was he used a, a lot of clusters and a lot of bunkering to fill that space by swinging the fairway from one side of the corridor to the other and using bunkers to interrupt that. And often he alternated that, so it was swinging back and forth like the, uh, the letter S. 
So what that does is it fills the space and it fills the scale. But with all the bunkering, rather than single bunkers, you went with a lot more clusters of bunkers, some large, some small. So mixed it up. But he, he got really huge swings back and forth, which adds visual interest. And the other thing is what it creates is carry angles. So where Banff really came to life was there are an incredible amount of carry angles in that golf course, more, much more so maybe than anything else he ever did uh, before or after. It's the one that really stands out for me for the carry angles. And, and so he's asking you, take something on and, and you'll gain something. And it does that all day, more so than a lot of other golf courses. Jasper's a little bit more set to the side. Again, uh, St. George's, which follows really quickly on the heels of Banff, has carry angles, but it also, again, has um, things set a little bit more to the side. And then he actually kind of uh, gets a lot more relaxed and, and um, uses less bunkering on Capilano because of the severity of the site. But Banff Springs was not just another job in the Rockies. This was Thompson at the peak of his career. With his creativity and confidence at an all-time high, he was ready to show the world his talents. And that's exactly what he was doing. To me, Banff is actually the highest point of his artistic ability. He, he essentially shows, I can fill this space, I can create these carry angles, I can, I can trick you, I can entice you, I can attract you, I can um, make you smile. And he just shows you every trick that he's got, everything he's learned over 40 golf courses, and it all comes together in one spot. And he just wows you to the point that you almost don't look up. Like he's really at the peak of his powers and he's throwing it down and it is just jaw-dropping start to finish. It's um, a level of showmanship that's involved in this where I think he's, he's really at his peak. The interesting thing is what happens to a lot of artists is when they, they know they're at their peak, when they can do anything they want, the first thing they realize is um, a little less actually makes a better composition. And I think that actually came really quickly. I think he realized, um, not so much at St. George's, but it was very soon after that, I noticed that you could just see he clearly stepped back. He never stepped out at that level ever again. Not at that level. He had moments, and he'd do it for five or six holes in the golf course, but then he would understate a few moments so that you had more highs and lows. But at Banff, it's just full on. It just keeps coming at you more and more and more and even when you've got a russian river on one side you're gonna have a, a bunker complex where you're staring at all the fingers and faces and the, and and just how elaborate it is on the other side he just that's the thing about banff at banff the level of artistry i don't think i'm not really sure i can say anybody touched it in golf there's mckenzie work that's on that level there's a little bit of tillinghouse work as well that's on that level but i really think that they're you're comparing equals or peers. So as Thompson was firing on all cylinders, like you're saying, was he showing his brilliance because of the land, his skills, and his original ideas? Or was he borrowing ideas from his peers and influences, you know, such as Ross, Mackenzie, Tillinghast, and even some of the greats from the British Lynx? Or was this all him? He learned from others. So um, he was an admirer of Colt. He um, saw the Lynx courses when he served in the war. So he played with his brother, Frank. Um, he also made trips down to New York to meet with people. And um, he saw places uh, like Wingfoot 
and um, I know later, I know he saw Pine Valley because he talked about how much he liked it, but would never build anything like it. When they planned Jasper, they talked about uh, Glen Eagles, the King's Course, and uh, the National Golf Links of America. Um, so they talked about these were the sort of the foundational courses that they were trying to aspire to. So he was definitely paying attention. And I know he uh, saw some of Thomas's work later in life. So he was he was inspired. Uh, Cornish told a really interesting story about um, he was inspired, but it also, um, I've never been able to be clear about it, but there's sort of a hint of having issues with depression. And um, he talked about um, Thompson would have the blues, that he would see somebody's work and he'd be impressed by it, and it would actually put him down in the dumps for a little while. So I don't know whether it's competition or whether it's just knowing that there's somebody better than you. So the only thing I could say to that very quickly is I've had that as, as a professional. I've gone out to see somebody else's work and gone, they're doing better work than I've done. And you know it. And and. You know, one of the great parts is having the honesty to say that to yourself, because how else are you going to raise your bar? You've, you've got to look at somebody who's doing better work and say, I need to be better. I need to do that. It may be in details. It may be in art. It, it, and so I, I, I've got to believe that, um, you know, if, if, he, if he was one of those larger in life personalities, a lot of time that comes with a lot of emotion. And if you're if you carry that sort of emotion, then you're going to be Competitive is not necessarily the right word, but you're going to be very self-aware. And uh, so I, I always got the impression that uh, he got inspired by others. Um, you know, sometimes not feeling so good about yourself for a short period of time also is inspiration to be better and do better and become better. And all of a sudden you are better. And so I wonder if that was part of the process along the way. And I will point out, you know, some of that is speculation. I have no known facts to whether he was uh, had issues with depression, but it does explain some of his drinking issues if he did. Yeah, I, th- I think this is speculation as well. But do you feel that, like you said, his brilliance really shone through in Banff and that he had done so much work already and then maybe in his own mind he did feel, wow, this is, this is my peak. Can I do better than this? Am I plateauing now? I, I don't doubt for a minute that he thought he could, he would be busier and better, that it, this would just keep going. Because I think the one thing that sort of crushed him in the 30s was he had a lot of confidence even when things downturned because he kept finding key projects that sort of filled the void. And I think in the early 30s, he was quite confident that everything would pick up again, that this was just a blip that came from 29 sort of through to 34. And I think he was jarred as it sort of got worse and worse. And I think the the war was a a really unpleasant shock for him um, because that's about when he started to to drink a lot more. And then I think he uh, there was an initial spurt of work that came in the late 40s. And I think he thought that was also going to be just a boom to follow the war like the last one. And then it sputtered. And again, he sort of spiraled downwards again through that and became a, uh, a, a bit depressed by the way everything was going at that point in his life. So um, 
I think I think in uh, in 27, 28, 29, I, I think he was um, not in drug terms. I think he was high as a kite. I think he was he knew he was great because people around him were were he, his peers were telling him that, and people around him were well aware. Uh, Banff and Jasper were well followed in the U.S. And he was a famous architect, and he was just a celebrity. And so, you know, he wasn't that old at that point, and he was on top of the world. He was 40 golf courses in by Banff. He had to believe he was going to build 200 golf courses, not have trouble getting past 80. Thompson, along with his associates, spent time in the war. He was a gunner in the Great War who safely returned home, but like many soldiers, he likely suffered from depression, what is now commonly known as PTSD, which like Ian mentioned, probably attributed to his drinking habits. Depression and PTSD was not really recognized in those times. It was more, oh, he just can't shake the war. But Stanley's method of shaking the war was a little different than most. He channeled that energy towards work and building some of the most recognized golf courses in the country. I, I do know that he talked to Jeff Cornish um, when war broke out because all the all the associates served in World War II, every one of them. Um, he Jeff talked about he turned to him and said, "Well, it's your turn, boys." And he just um, essentially he did his duty. It was their turn to do their duty. So that's my only insight to any of his feelings about the war that it clearly was duty. Um, when he came back, he went to university, went to University of Guelph, and he was doing more of an agricultural side of things, but it was a good fit to where he was going to end up with Thompson coming and Thompson. And so that was sort of coming out of the war, but he, he joined up with them and he was um, largely doing on-site for them initially, and then would become involved in some of the designs even before the Thompson coming and Thompson dissolved. He kind of took it over and then they just, he just, he himself changed it to Stanley Thompson and Company, um, but it, it, it appears to me that uh, this was what he was going to do. Um, and I think this time spent um, studying the Lynx courses because there's a great quote about um, not um, studying the Lynx is akin to not studying the Bible and being a divinity student. So um, uh, he um, he spent time over there. And he clearly got around a lot. I, I do have some individual places I know he played, um, but he's talked about the old course too. So you know he played there as well. Stanley Thompson completed Banff Springs in 1929 after a couple years of work. While he was working in the National Park, he was also completing jobs at Allcrest, Assiniboine, Calgary Golf and Country Club, and most notably for the Edmonton listeners, the Royal Mayfair an understated, small, and simple design that has gone on to hold the Ladies' CN Canadian Open. After Banff, Thompson returned back east to finish up a slew of jobs throughout the 30s, including Westmount, another underrated Thompson gem. Stanley had cemented himself in Western Canadian golf culture with his work in the Rocky Mountain National Parks, but he was not finished with the West. Join us next time for the conclusion of the series where Thompson finally reaches the West Coast for his most challenging mountain build, Capilano Golf Club. Once again, we would like to thank Ian Andrew for his help with this project. Go check him out at Ian Andrew Golf on Instagram and Twitter. 
Cheers, everybody. <laughs>